well, those books are kind of niche. Oh, God. I said, oh, my culture niche now? <laughs> Do you agree with it? I really, um, like, I'm trying agree to agree with just, just the call that if you are black, white people owe you money. I don't think there's a such thing as my kids being too woke. Yeah. Right? So I can't undo where I grew up. I can't undo that. And I can't, I'm not going to feel bad for it. You're listening to Your Neighbor's Hood, a podcast for uncomfortable culture conversations, specifically about race. Do your thing, Christina and Jackie. Hello, hello, it's Jackie here. No Christina today, but she'll be back giving you what's good in the hood. It's so great. I'm really excited to have one of our listeners come on and do a what's good in the hood as we have been starting to have folks support the podcast through Patreon. So I'm really, really, really excited. Hopefully next week we'll be able to have be sharing what's good in the hood with one of you guys which is really exciting. And that's a real plus as the podcast grows, um, supporters and sponsorships and all that stuff that goes along with making a podcast a business is beautiful. So I realize it's been a while. Um, one thing that's really good in the hood is I survived a training event um, a couple weekends ago, the Vote Run Lead, the organization that Christina and I actually met through had a national training day, which was super cool, a national training day. um, And I got to go to St. Louis and train with some amazing women. Shout out to Rosetta and um, Tashara, who is the treasurer of the city for the city of Missouri, and Rosetta, who is an amazing, phenomenal organizer, political um, beast out there in the St. Louis area. I met a cousin. Uh, so <laughs> I met I, I have a new cousin in in St. Louis, so I'm really excited about just connecting and making relationships with amazing women who are going to go out in this world and do amazing things. So this training that I went to was for uh, women who want to or are thinking about being or running for office or maybe even being campaign managers. You know, we all are always looking for permission to do stuff. So we're just telling you, go get it, go get it. If if not you, then who? And giving women the tools through the Vote One Lead organization. Oh, which support? With the support of the United States of Women, which is another amazing organization who will have ambassadors coming out here pretty soon for the 2019 era trying to get gender equality. No, we're getting it. We're getting it. We're getting there. So that's really, really exciting. Um, My citizens are getting ready to be out of school, so it's going to be wacky. So I'm interested to see what my what good, what's good in the hoods are going to look like over the next um, three months because citizens will be home. That's kind of how I feel. That's kind of how I feel, but love them to death, but geez louise. So getting that schedule together and whatever that looks like um, and going to be doing some good work like the woman that we are speaking to today. So um, a bit ago, we did an interview with a phenomenal woman, Jamila Liscott, and a doctor, excuse me, Jamila Liscott. And she just, if, if I were to say that I'm lost for words for, see, I don't have words. Bottom line, what she brings to the table with getting us to understanding language, race, politics is, it's for everybody. 
the second time I listened to it, I cried. The third time I listened to it, I have so many notes. And once this airs, I'll probably listen to it again and still get things to help myself understand what it means to um, have an appreciation for um, African-American English and you know, it's really hard to put in words. I think you guys are going to have to listen to this one. I kept a lot of the stuff in there. It's pretty long, but I, I think you will enjoy it for what it's worth. Um, and that it's a continuous struggle, like she said, um, to even to not compromise our own voices in in this, this um, painstaking process of social justice. And as she said, her journey to getting personal justice justice. Um, She has a book out. Uh, We'll talk about her book. We'll talk about um, her work and talk about what you can do and and what we can do. Book is Black Appetite, um, White Food, and it is available everywhere. It's available. You can get it. Uh, But you're going to be dropping in on the conversation that we're having with the doctor. um, Just getting to know who she is, her mission, and what she brings to all of our table. Let's eat. So we're going to get into it. Yeah. So for our listeners, can you just tell us who you are on a whole? Like what, who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my name is Dr. Jamila Liscott. I am a professor. I'm a community, community engaged scholar and artist. And I, I, work very closely with schools, communities, young people, educators, to really think about um, racial justice and equity, particularly for my work, my scholarship, it looks at the intersections of language, race, and power as a way to understand educational inequity. And so I'm thinking a lot about the way, in particular, Black people are asked to engage in acts of erasure or assimilation in order to be valued in our society mm. and, and what it means for us to reimagine um, in, in educational world, what it means for us to reimagine what the norms and values of, of these institutions look like when they truly value the substance of, of marginalized peoples. Mm. So just moving away from the notion that having different color people in the room is diversity and thinking about what it means to value our, our, our minds and not just our bodies, to value our cultures and not just our physical presence in ways that reshape and reimagine what education looks like or reshapes and reimagine what our world looks like. Um, so, so that's a lot of our work really closely with young people, youth activists, youth researchers, using hip-hop, spoken word, media. And then I kind of just like take what I'm doing organically and work with educators so that they're prepared for really affirming and valuing and centering young people of color in their work. Nice. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Do do education culturally with intent. Yeah. Yeah. So how does a person, how do you get caught up in this side of things? Like, how do you get wrapped up in, in, in language? Because I heard you say, I took medieval literature and it was lit. I was like, what? Who says that? How, do you, how did you get caught up in work? <laughs> you know, it's a lot of things. Like one, one thing that I'm, so part of the work that, you know, I'm very much into disrupting what's been, you know, described as 
the important distinction between education and schooling. And so for that reason, it's important for us to know that the system of schooling is not the only place that people are being educated, especially people of color. And so for me as a black woman, as a young black woman growing up in the black church, it took a while for me to realize that this was like a powerful community oriented space that was shaping who I was shaping my voice. And like my, my, my own relationship with scripture and, and language and the rhetorical traditions of the black church was something that shaped my love for language. And also alongside that, this community-based organization called Urban Word NYC, I joined when I was 15 years old. And it's an after-school organization um, that, that really centers youth voice through spoken word and hip hop. And it's an interesting space because the, my peers in that space were like failing high school a lot of the times and then coming to this space for writing intensive workshops and for like these powerful conversations that showed me like, yo, like schools don't know how to value the power of, of people of color in real ways. And so like there's that being in that world of spoken word and just like ideas and language and being under the rhetorical traditions of the, of the black church. And like, I just fell in love with language in, in ways that somehow just pulled me into medieval literature in, in undergrad. That's what happened. So I just kind of like tinkered with the classes a little bit and then just became fascinated, like fascinated with how language is a living thing and it evolves and it shifts. I came fascinated, became fascinated with the fact that the English language was not even valued by the social elite yeah. when, um, you know, in, in the time of, of um, a lot of the medieval writers. So I'm like, yo, like this is very political, the way that we police language. Yeah. And I started to just thought of the issues manifest in my own world. Wow. That's, a, wow. So can you speak to your TED Talk? Like, where did that come from? How did that come about? Yeah. So that was a, it was a real <laughs> moment, like an actual moment where I was on a panel um, and I was speaking. I, I was, it was a panel for a room full of high school students. I was, I talk about this a little bit in my book as well. Like I was speaking for, um, these high school students, I was new to college, I was 19, and this woman in the room cut me off in the middle of, of what I had to say, and she just said, I, I'm, I apologize for cutting you off, but I just have to say, you are so articulate. <laughs> she meant it so genuinely from the bottom of her heart. Yeah, like at the end of the day, I was like, what? Like it, it, it never occurred to me before that moment that I was negotiating my my literate and racial identities in ways that felt um, like deeply political. Ugh. It's just something that I learned and internalized somewhere along the way. And so I, like, I left in this deep discomfort. I literally wrote that poem on the train ride home. Get out. The process my thinking, like what just happened? Yeah. And I realized that um, what made me articulate. So a lot of people are turning to this TED talk to have conversations about code switching yeah. Which is like, TED Talk is not about code switching. Explain what code switching is, because we have a lot of listeners that won't they, know it. If they is. haven't listened to a previous episode, they, yeah, they won't have no idea. So code switching refers to the way that um, particularly linguistically marginalized communities like have to... I love that. Have to. You say stuff and I'm like, uh-huh, yes. <laughs> linguistically marginalized people. 
Yeah. yeah, like like just kind of in order to adhere to the 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 white middle class values that saturate all of our institutions, just constantly have to move, switch in and out of codes of expression, of language, of their linguistic identities. And the problem is that so so I'm like not about code switching. Um, I know that a lot of people are on. It's very weird being in academia because a lot of times the scholarship moves much faster than what's happening in the world. And if it makes sense, like moment that educators just started latching on to this notion of code switching and felt like, yo, like this is a really powerful way to help affirm our students in academia. There were a lot of really dope scholars who were just like, wait a minute, like we're asking these young people to still switch in and out of themselves. And we're saying your voice is only appropriate in certain ways, in certain places, and that's problematic. Yeah. And so, like, that conversation has been going on for really long, but it just, like, hasn't hit, like, the, spa- the places and spaces in real time, um, like, like, the spaces that, that I think really, really should be in those conversations. Which I, I can't stand the disparity between academia and, and like, real, the real, real world. Real life, which is why we try to balance here, like the the academic side and like real life. It's funny that you said you gave an articulate story. Yeah. Because. Now I'm sweating. She's sweating. Look, Christina. (laughs) Christina, go ahead. Christina, tell her, Christina. Don't be shy. Sure. So I ran her campaign, as I told you, and I was out on the campaign trail and you knocked, God, we knocked like 8,000 doors between two of us. Which is a lot of doors. Right. And uh, on the campaign trail, I came across a little black boy who was sitting on his porch. He was so cute with a bag of chips. And I walked up to his door and I said, hey, I'm here on behalf of Jackie for school board. Um, Is your mom or dad home? And he said, no. And then he proceeded to ask me, what's a school board? Can I vote? How do I vote? What is, you know, just like all these really interesting, smart questions about schools. And school board and it was like a half an hour long conversation uh with he's like nine and so then i came home to jackie's house and i was like this boy was so articulate and i said that and i had no concept of what it was or what it meant yeah that was that was our first hard conversation well it wasn't hard but it was the first time that we had to like you have a race have a race how like you said the lady you said when you said the lady said i don't know how you said the lady said that she, like she didn't mean no harm but it hit you yeah. yeah. So when she said it, it like I felt like I was negotiating in that moment. Mm-hmm. How do I tell her that that's not okay? Right. Yeah. Not I mean, okay. there's layers to it because most people get once you bring it up, most people are like, okay, I could see how that's racialized. I could see how. Yeah, yeah that's like the most thought. obvious critique. The most, most like the most obvious part of it is that why would you be surprised that I'm articulate? Right. But right. The part of it that I'm interested in, alongside that is how we define articulate. Yeah, that's what the TED Talk is about. It's not about me saying I'm excited about code switching. It's about me saying that I'm not articulate because I can speak white middle-class English. That's not why I'm articulate. I'm articulate because of all of the brilliant ways that my culture, my identity, um, my ethnicity, like all all of these things shape my voice and they shape who I am. And they shape my intellectualism in ways that are not usually valued by institutions. Yeah. That's what makes me articulate. Yeah. And so it's like I'm challenging the, the, the standards and the values that we have 
about um, who's accepted as intellectual yeah. worthy in our society. Can you speak to, you said in your speech that your language was stolen. Can you speak to that? I think a lot of our listeners won't even know what that means or. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm really referring to um, one of the strategies of American chattel slavery, colonialism, um, just at the outset was to split up the the African peoples that were stolen, like to split them up by language so that they couldn't communicate. Yeah. And so the, the 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 really powerful thing about African American English and other creolized Englishes that that emerge out of these violent histories is that they emerge from those contours, like being being on a plantation with someone who speaks a different language from you, although they're from the same continent and creating some kind of, um, to creating some kind of communication in that moment, like having to figure out how to still communicate whilst, while witnessing and listening to the English language that's happening around you. Like all of that is a part of the creolization of American African American English, yeah. so much so that that linguistic scholars have been able to show that the features of African American English match map onto the features of West African languages. Yeah. So th- those roots are still there, and the, so so there was like this attempt to steal the language, right? To like split us up and divide us by language so that we could lose our voices, but it, it still we survived. Yeah. Right. Still, we made a way in that. Still, we held on to the history and the power of the linguistic practices that come from the continent. And so it's really me speaking about the attempt, like like you attempted to steal my language. You know, we 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 thrived throughout that. And then you have the audacity to critique the powerful um, like what I say, linguistic celebration, the celebration of of this these different languages that emerge from those struggles, like, it's just like, to me, it's like doubling down on the pain. Yeah. So in plain words, it's, it's fucked up. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, some more, <laughs> so some, and, it, and it hurts. Yeah, it does hurt. And, and the problem is that most people, most black people have internalized that African-American English is inferior. Yes. So like really just, so messed up on so many levels you know it's too much (laughs) so I'm gonna tell you how I called my mom um you know in preparation for this I was like ma I don't want to ever hear you tell me again not to say axe okay Mm. it originated as where does that come from from she took a midi you took okay so you were telling she did this this medieval literature am I saying this right class and then you learned that I mean, it's sort of not the etymology of X, but you just learned that X during that time was it was actually A X E X and not ask. Yeah, that was the original word for ask in English. In yeah, English. and I say ask all the time. Even how did black people pick it up versus white people? I don't, I don't know how why black people say ask, but all oh, I know yeah. is it's, very, it's hilarious that we're corrected yeah, for it. If that's the original, it's just interesting. To, that's just fascinating yeah. how one. Yeah, it is very fascinating. I don't yeah. get it. So I, I, ever, I said, but I better not ever hear you say Pacific for specific either. Right. <laughs> I'm like, be more Pacific, Jackie. And I'm like, no, it's, it's specific. Okay, good. I thought you were arguing that. No, no. It's not good. <laughs> so then here's, here's where it gets really interesting for me, um, doctor. 
Um, and so like I have these little citizens that come to my house um, to do homework after school. And one of the biggest issues that or concerns that I have with the ones that come is their reading. Like that's it. Every, everybody's got a reading problem. Everybody is a grade or two or three sometimes behind. And it, you know, knowing what I know, right, just from learning from you, I'm torn because I understand that the way they speak in society is yes. And I understand that in the classroom, it's unacceptable. But then in order for them to succeed in some ways, I'm like, I have to teach you how to say this word so you can spell this word. So it's like a battle with, with phonics education. And like, I don't want to steal, you know, screet from my, the kid because his mama say screet, <laughs> you know, get out the screen. But then I'm like, I need you to, I need you to say street because when you, when they ask you for that special sound, I need you to know that it's STR. It's, you get what I'm saying? How it could be, it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I mean, this is the same, this is the conversation that I have with most educators and parents about this. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. Centering and affirming the linguistic practices of, of people of color is not about, um, abandoning rigor. It's not about abandoning standards. It's not about abandoning other ways of knowing. It's really about challenging the kind of standards that we center. So a lot of my work is, is rooted in culturally sustaining pedagogy, right? Mm-hmm. And culturally sustaining pedagogy is asking that we move from. She's a pedagogy, so that's the pedagogy, yeah. children, oh, right? So pedagogy is like the art of teaching. teaching. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. So yeah. So like most educators are familiar with culturally relevant pedagogy. This idea that you know, if you really want to work with diverse populations, their culture needs to be a part of the work. But as an outgrowth, an outgrowth of that culturally sustaining pedagogy is like we need to sustain the linguistic and heritage practices of people of color as a part of the classroom. classroom. So what it's saying is that we need to move from a hierarchy to something called cultural pluralism, and cultural pluralism means that that white middle-class English is a valid form of English, but so is African-American English. Yeah. So it's not that I'm saying to not equip the young people with, with white middle-class English. Yeah. I'm saying that we can't keep teaching them that white middle-class English is superior to the linguistic practices that come from their communities. Got it. Right? And, yeah. and, and they need to know that there are politics involved with that hierarchy. So yeah, they got to play the game, but most of us teach them the game yeah. as if it's it's fixed right like you need oh you want you could speak like that out here but when you get on that job interview no i need to know that it's racist that i need to go to a job interview and have to perform whiteness in order to be valued right because then when i get into a position of power i'm going to challenge and reshape what these institutions do so there's that part of it but then there's another part there's there's a there's a um a real tension that i like to bring up around our, our society lies. We lie, we lie, we lie. Because we say that we value, we don't value street, we don't value African-American language. But what happens is if you look at media, the same language practices that we say, we tell our young people is powerless because is the standard English is the language of power, mm-hmm. is the same language practices that these corporations are using in order to gain mass appeal in their marketing campaign. Yeah, marketing, yeah, absolutely. 
all of it. You see Cardi B, you see all of it, right? It hits, it resonates, it's powerful, but it's only powerful when these corporations are employing it for their gain. Absolutely. And it's powerless when it's in the mouths and hands of, of our own people. Now yeah. that's a problem too. Yeah, it is. Because discrimination is only, it's, it's, it's bad when it's, um, when it's not profitable. So it's like, it's, it's never a problem until we start talking about profit. So you, I mean, you made a, a very valid point. I think that people should hear, like when you look at, like you were saying, McDonald's, like I'm loving it. That's, that's not, people don't. Yeah. Can you speak to that? I heard that in your speech. Can you tell yeah. me that? Yeah. Yeah. So that, so I was telling you earlier about the, um, the features of African-American English that have survived from West African language practices. And one of those features is something called consonant variation and consonant variation refer like that's an example of it. The dropping of the G right there. That's a huge feature in African-American English, but it's constantly corrected in schools where, you know, we're like, don't speak like that. You know, we need you to have the access to power and then you turn around and McDonald's gets to make all this money off of yes. this linguistic feature that is readily available in, in you know, it's cultural appropriation. It's yeah. linguistic appropriation. And so at this point, it's like, why are you telling me that my language has no power until you're able to capitalize on it? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's the issue there. Shoot, I don't watch plenty of Martin, plenty of In Living Color that I just can't get that out. Mm-hmm. You can't, you just can't get it. It's, I don't want it to go anywhere because I value it, you know? And I, I'm, I, I will tell you that I, I feel like I'm just now getting to a point in my life within the past three, three to four years where like I'm uh, taking the stance that like, I'm not, I'm not changing. I'm not changing the way I speak. I'm just not doing it. Like I've given up on it because it's work one. And then two, it's like, it's not bad. It ain't bad. It's not terrible, you know? And I just feel like there are many, many people out there, I'm say black folks, and even the European American people want you to understand that like it it is a chore to do some of the things you just, you know, that you're talking about, the code switching, the the unlearning. But it's like it's not, it's it doesn't make me it, it's been presented to us to make us bad people. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? To say that I'm unintelligent. Yeah, or uneducated. Or uneducated. But like that's far from the truth. And I think once, if, if we can take the responsibility of trying to, I guess, on the, because we're about what can you do in your neighborhood. It's like if you can look at that intelligence comes in many forms and intelligence doesn't, um, isn't, isn't European, isn't always European, then I think we can get somewhere with, especially the little citizens on the block, just loving themselves in the places that they are mm-hmm. and valuing who and what they are, where they are. Yeah, I love that. And I think this would go over more because I see like, even with parents, like I don't want to go to the school. I'm going to tell you, I heard this all the time. I'm not going to school to talk to them people because they're not going to make me feel dumb. Do you know? Yeah. That, and that's what it is. Yeah. There's a historical memory there yeah. around and, like constructing yeah, black people as inferior, yeah. delinquent, barbaric. It's a part of the political process of of this nation, the history of this nation. So you and you talk about language being political mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, and 
concur fly mode too like I, i'm with you um so what do you think we as like everyday people because we're about people doing the things on the block what kind of politics can we do to be affirming with our language mm-hmm. i mean to me it's all about I, one of the things i want us to do is in within our communities to celebrate, affirm, and educate ourselves about the value of our linguistic and cultural practices. Like, I understand that the generation before us as a method of survival had to engage in a lot of assimilation, a lot of cultural erasure to survive, to create. I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to shame them. It's like they had to create. I'm privileged right now to be walking around talking about you know, my linguistic, like all of that is on the backs of people who had to lower their eyes in front of white people in order to survive, right? And so I understand that. But now that we're ushering ourselves into a new generation and we want to say that we're working towards equity in real ways, we have to work work through the internalized inferiority that we have about our own culture and language practices, and then to center and affirm it at all times, and to demand that institutions reimagine themselves in the service of true equity. So you can no longer tell me that I have access to this space if access means coming through this door and acting as white as possible. Mm -hmm. Access means that you need to reimagine yourself in in the service of the, the cultural... Um, and the cultural, racial, linguistic identities of, of the, the people that you say are walking into the room, because most of the institutions in our society were built at the exclusion of people of color. Yeah. So how are you just going to open the doors and be like, I right, come through and just act like us and just try to be quiet and, and make it? No, 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 no. Now we got we to gotta get back to the drawing board and think about what does this look like? Because then it, we just continue to be marginalized in those spaces. So I think we have to do the internal work. I think we have to demand our institutions do better. And I think we have to celebrate our own, um, our own identities in real ways. So we got to give ourselves, ourself, our language and our culture. It's, um, we got to put dignity back into our, our yes. yes, yes. Sounds like you're saying. Yes. So, I mean, I, I really, what I'm going to do is I'm going to think on that. Like what, yeah. what, what specific things can, can we do? Your face was screwed up. When she was talking, because you were going through some confusion. Figure out, just process yeah. it, say it out loud. Well, I'm just trying to figure out where did the difference in language come from? Well, you were saying something about uh, a president. You were like, Obama, oh, something. Yeah. I didn't hear what you said. Well, Obama just sounded white. You know what I mean? Do you, you feel like he sounded white? I think so. You feel like so? Yeah. White? I think, I feel like in some ways, um, he has a cadence in which he speaks that I know he's black. Mm-hmm. Like I can you hear, pick up on it. I can hear that he's black, yeah. but maybe that's me being biased, or maybe that's know. me. Me. But what? I think I'd like to take it a step back and have her explain to us, like, where does the cadence come from? I've often said I love, you- I love black language, and I think it's beautiful. I think there's a cadence. It sounds like music to me. It's like a cadence to the way you speak. But where does that come from? So there's like something called a black scent that some some folks in linguistics are have have like made kind of popular and that it's from that history that i was sharing i mean so there are many there are different um like black forms of english all over the african diaspora mm-hmm. but in terms of that there and there are also many forms of african-american english in america as well yeah. and so um a lot of it again comes through 
those histories that I was talking about right there, like the histories, the, the, the institutions within black communities like the black church, like if you pay attention to the history and the, the, um, the authority that the black church has had historically in black communities, you'll see rhetorical traditions like call and response, right? Um, there are some things that, that there's a rhythm to that that's important. If you think about hip hop culture, and if you think about like some really lasting traditions and institutions in black communities, those contribute to, there's like a, a, relate, a back and forth relationship between how those shape black language and how black language shapes those spaces. Yes. And so that rhythm is all tied up in that history. It's all tied up in that history that literally began with coming here and just like the attempt to strip that language away and not being able to communicate with another person and just like working through that all the way through. If you think about the blues, there's a history to that. And the, and again, all of that is the blues is tied up in the black church. Like all of that rhythm is connected. Yeah. Um, and it, and it just comes through. Yeah, when you say, when she says call and response, you know what she means. Mm -hmm. Like when the preacher's like, can I get amen, amen? Or when he's talking like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And then same thing in hip hop when he's like, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a uh, If you think about we gonna be all right, maybe like, there's yeah. just like a, Yeah, I'm trying to think of a, I'll look, I could, I'm drawing a blank of like a, a, I don't know. Yeah, but it's a call, it's really is, it's, it's an echo chamber, but it's to a beat into a flow like yeah that's what i'm saying i feel like black language has a cadence yeah i've I always said you. that i agree with you yeah I, I, I tend to agree with that it's beautiful to me i love it i i can't emulate it but do you feel like so like I, i'm thinking about how you would you said like that do you think that certain not having that cadence as much is more palatable to certain People, I mean, I think European American people, people. I don't think so. I think it. I've often been fascinated and like the way you speak, but I, yes, of course, because yes, there's terrible words that people would say that in you your, speak. Yeah, the way we speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I see that. It's not worth repeating, but, but yeah. Yeah. Oh Jesus. So I mean, I just I just wrote this um, article called "The Politics of Ratchetness" that has to do with oh, um, yeah. with yeah. the way. That some like it's really tracing one young woman that I work with and the way that she negotiates her literate and racial identities, like moving through time and space where she feels safe enough to, to be connected to her voice, you know? Yeah. And it's just like coming up for me as you think about like the conversation you have, it's like linguistic racism is real. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a term I've never heard before. Me neither. That's yeah. why I say everything she says is a t-shirt. Yeah. That's a t-shirt. Linguistic racism is real. Quote. <laughs> I'm not playing. You need to, okay, so we need to go ahead and get your merch because I feel like <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna open up a merch store on my website. You you really getting me somewhere? Okay, because I already got. I'm telling you, I already got. If I go back to my notes, I probably got enough three, four T-shirts for you. But speaking of merch, you have a book. Yes, yes, I do. Yes, you I have do. a book, and we know the discipline that it takes. Yeah. To, Bring that baby to life. So tell us about this journey to bringing this book to the world. Yeah, that that was a journey, like an, an unexpected one. So this book, um, the, the, the name of the book is Black Appetite, White Food. And, you know, what's interesting to me about the journey of writing this book is that I, I first went on to write the book 
in a way that it kind of defeated and undermined the message of my life. Like I was trying to write a book that sounded like a book that should be written. Like it was weird. I just was trying to write a book. I'm like, this is how a book should sound. <laughs> and then like, it was a lot of, um, there was a lot going on in my life personally that was affecting my mental health. And I just kind of like took a step back from the book altogether. And <clears throat> like my editor, like so kindly, just one day, months later, was just like, hey, <laughs> you know, feel free to, you know, send the manuscript in. And I'm just like, oh, like, I really should get on that. And in that moment, after having been through, like, some real stuff that I think, like, like really deepened my understanding of what it means to integrate my mind, body, and soul, I came back to writing the book. But I was like, wait a minute. I need to write what I have to say. And it was very, it was very different. Like I just literally the whole proposal that I sent to them, I, I threw it out the window and I, and I sent them a completely new manuscript. And I was like, look, I took a leap of faith here, but this is my voice. And I'm compromising my voice to write a book that I think should sound like a book. And that's not cool. Yeah. And they were just like, we love it. You know, thank you so much. It's brilliant. And I was like, yes. And it was a very affirming, you know, um, but I think that mental health piece was a big and it's in the book, too. I speak about it in the book. Like, yo, I didn't realize that in doing this work, I have to tap into the way my mental health is being affected yeah. about all of this, you know? Mm -hmm. So I say, like, I was on, you know, on the front lines of every protest, Black Lives Matter, ah, ah, ah. Meanwhile, my Black life is not mattering out here because I'm not taking care of myself. Mm -hmm. so I was like, I'm spending all my time trying to convince white people that Black Lives Matter and they got me. They really got me because I'm spending so much energy focused on them that I'm not taking care of me. Yeah. And that was a real wake-up call for me. So, yeah, that, all that. <laughs> so tell us the premise of the book. So this book, Black Appetite, White Food, is really about sitting in, you know, I say it, it, I, I say it like it's sitting in the tension of excellence and erasure. It's sitting in the tension of the conversation we're having right now. Like, what does it mean to know that your Black self is brilliant and beautiful and powerful, but still have to navigate a world that is saturated in white supremacy? Yeah. And like, I'm saying that from my personal standpoint as a Black woman, but I understand that all historically marginalized groups are in this, stuck in this like really toxic binary, um, um, this toxic uh like it's like a toxic binary of blackness and whiteness where blackness is on the bottom and whiteness is on the top anywhere you go on this globe. And, and it's like, how do we disrupt that? <clears throat> and how do we navigate this tension? So our world keeps feeding us whiteness as rightness, no matter where we go. And even as we know our value, we're still trying to access those spaces and have multiple forms of freedom. Mm -hmm. So I'm really thinking about the way that that plays out mostly in, in um, the field of education because I'm working with educators across predominantly white institutions who want to change, who want to see institutions that truly value diversity in real palpable ways. Yeah. Wow. Girl. Wow. So I, and I'm listening and I'm digesting and I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that like you still have to have conversations with yourself about these very things that you're educating on. Yeah. Which further affirms like the, the, the work don't stop. Knowledge is not the end of the work and action is not the end of the work. Like it's a, it is, it is a, it's a, 
it's a cycle that you have to continue. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you don't stay in that cycle, but you just have, it's, it's continuous work. So forth, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That personal journey you talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. you bring, you bring a, a conversation that I think, I don't know how ready we are to have it as black people that we have to have with ourselves about what it means to be black. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, we've been every single time we have conversations, it's there is this meter or there is a benchmark for what it means to be black, right? Black is synonymous. You have to struggle. You have to live in the hood. You have to do this. You have to do that in order to be black. But really, we too come on a spectrum and like we too have to have those conversations that I say this, we, mm-hmm. you know, that we listen from everything to Coldplay to Dr. Dre, that we, we too can be jocks and nerds and we can be from suburbia, like not having, and we can speak very differently from each other and still be black. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Like that we, we kind of have to sit in spaces with each other while we, while we going after European American people for the, the institutions that are set up and for them being a part of it and for white supremacy, we also kind of have to have the conversation with our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our uncles, our neighbors. Like, so don't tell me that I'm acting white or don't tell me that I'm not black because I choose, I make choices that are, that are just life, different sorts of life choices. I feel, fulfill myself. I, did, I didn't lose my blackness because I decided to you know, join the military. I didn't lose my blackness because I listened to Katy Perry. Like it, that didn't happen. Like I'm mm-hmm. still black as hell. So. I mean, the, the, the issue is that these issues in our communities internally are rooted in white supremacy. Yes. And so it's just like, you, it, you just keep recoiling on yourself. And this is the tension that I'm talking about. So to me, the epitome, the epitome of black appetite white food is the whole Oscar's so white situation, right? Like, it's yeah. so weird because mm-hmm. as soon as a black person wins an Oscar, I'm like so hyped. And then I'm so mad that I'm so hyped. Like, I'm just like, I'm like, why do we have to beg you to be in these spaces? Like, why do we need your awards to affirm us? But at the same time, it's like, we know that if we're not being centered and valued in those kinds of spaces, it has resonant impact yeah. on on the reality of what happens in Hollywood and by extension, how representation occurs. So you're just like stuck in this tension of knowing that we don't need that, that affirmation, but still like really celebrating it. It's so weird. (laughs) So that is to me, the tension of just being stuck in this place where white supremacy is saturating our reality in ways that, that we we need to be released from. Yeah. That's all, that's all non-white people. That, that's all non-white, non, that's all non-European American people. And exactly. That's why, that's why the book, yeah, exactly. That's why I talk about that spectrum. It's like weird because the, yeah, absolutely. Yes. For people of color broadly, we're all out here like, it's just stressful. Like. It's stressful. It's really, yeah, but you stay in the game. I'm glad that you brought out mental health. You want to talk to that? Now that's a yeah, important I mean, it's piece just, of I feel like a part of this work is mental health is a huge part. And I'm glad you brought it up because sometimes it's not a popular topic. But this work can take a mental toll for sure. Yeah. As a European-American, like, will you have this yeah, conversation? I think so. I mean, it just it can be stressful or, you know, it's fear-inducing in the sense that you, you get a lot of pushbacks for trying to do it. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's so, so on the one hand, part of my motivation to be intentional about my mental health is that when young people are witnessing the work, when they're witnessing us being engaged in the conversation and the work of equity and justice, a lot of times they're witnessing burnout. They yeah. witness people not take, and, and people believe more what they see than what they hear. Yeah. And I was like, yo, my responsibility to these young people coming up, like I have to be, like I have to, like that whole conversation, I have to matter. I have to be well. My wellness has to be at the center of this conversation because I don't want to model self-deprecation in the, in, in the, toward equity. Like doesn't make any sense. And so that's one part of it. The other part of it is I'm like, yo, when we talk about, because, because you know, races intersects with other um, systems of power, right? Like, like issues of gender and class and not. All of that's playing out in real, like, it's not just a conversation. This is playing out in real time in my home, in my family, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, yo, like, I'm learning more and more about a history of sexual assault in my family and, and, and thinking about the economic, the economic situation that occurred. My parents are immigrants. Like, there's a lot that's bearing down in real time right now. on the dynamic of my immediate world that it just became like I say somewhere in the book that after a while I felt like I didn't want social justice I wanted personal justice Mm. like I got weary like I was just like this social justice feels really abstract on a personal level I'm just like what is going on you know um in my world that is deeply connected to racism sexism economic oppression like I'm feeling it right now in my body because of the history of my own family. And that's painful. Yeah. You know, so that's part of the way the mental health conversation came from. It sounds like you're preaching something we tell our listeners and, and which is a very great takeaway as we kind of wrap down is that, you know, it's not about saving the world. It's about saving your world. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot, in your you, you do the, you do the one thing in your own backyard, but you have to take care of yourself because mm-hmm. yeah, you know, if you're not doing that one thing, if you're trying to save the world, then we're, we'll lose you. We're mm-hmm. going to lose you in the process because it's just not, it's just not possible. So what do you do? What do you do to take care of yourself since you're putting it out there that it, this is, this is a thing. What do you do? So first of all, all, everything that I do is rooted in my spirituality. I'm a Christian. Everything I do is motivated by my calling and so um, one, of the, one of the first things that I do is every day I spend time in meditation and prayer and reflection and I set the intention for my day and I do visualization work. <clears throat> and that visualization work is um, just something that I learned. I, 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 in this journey, I, I started to learn a lot about personal development. So I have a lot of tools at my disposal. So my visualization exercises will bring me to um, like five years out and I'm looking at where I want to be, who I want to be five years out. And I learned, I'm not looking at what I want to have. A lot of people do that with visualization. They think about what they want to have. I'm thinking about who I want to be. And then I will bring it back to one year and then I'll bring it back to one month and then I'll bring it back to this week. And then I'll bring it back to today because the moment that I decide that's who I want to be in five years. I'm thinking, what do I need to do today to inform that? And, and to inform it in terms of my wellness, in terms of living out my calling to the fullest, um, 
that's a really big part of how I make sure to take care of myself. I also am intentional about who has access to me in my inner circle as a form of self-care. Like I make sure, like I feel like we got to be mindful of surrounding ourselves with people with shared values and understanding that deep sense of accountability um, and, and care. A lot of us are navigating really toxic relationships and, and we want <clears throat> to have this social justice and our personal lives are unwell. And so those relationships definitely. So, I mean, those are just some of the things, but I'm like really deep into personal development and that's a part of my self-care work. I yes. learn more about how to heal my own triggers. Like I'm, I'm very, uh, self-awareness is big for me. I taught a course last semester. I'll teach it last, yeah, last semester. I'll teach it again next semester called self-awareness for social justice educators. Nice. And just having sustainable tools for understanding yourself, your past, your triggers, your trauma, your, your, um, your joys, your hope, your love, like all of those things inform how you show up. And being able to be in tune with that and to let it shape the work is like, is, is, is how I go about taking care of me. You preaching that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I want to take that course. That, look, that's oh my a, look, gosh. Yes. Just, that's amazing. That is amazing. Because you're at, you're at UMass. What, where are you teaching at? I'm at UMass Amherst right now. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That that's a lot to swallow, and I think anybody can take that on. It doesn't matter whether you're European American or you're non-European American. If you believe in being the change and doing the change, I think all of that. I think I could sit with that. Can you sit with it? Mm-hmm. I can sit with. This. I definitely think there's something to be said across those lines of different about difference about what it means to unpack your internalized privilege versus your internalized oppression. Mm. That's really important work. That's good. Yeah. Ooh. See. That's enough. Look, she just laying down truth. So the next book could just be a book of quotes. That's not hard work. Mm-hmm. I hear that. That's so funny. I appreciate it. Yeah. So at the end of every interview we do, or every episode, we do something called So What, Now What? And we talk about like the so what, like why does this matter? Why does this conversation matter? Um, and then now what we like to leave our listeners with, like where do we go from here? Or what do we do um, from here? So we do. So what now? We're going to do a round robin. <clears throat> We're going to let you end it because I'm pretty sure whatever you say is going to be so amazing. And then we're going to be like, yeah, second that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you want to go first? Sure. So I think the so what is, this is a really good, interesting conversation. I think a lot of white people are ignorant to the conversation in general. They don't understand the nuances of speech and the way that they matter. So I think just even white people like opening their eyes and ears to the conversation is huge. And my now what would be really listening to this episode and asking yourself about like perceived like implicit biases that you may have about someone based on the way they speak. Yeah. Because you may hear people and make an assumption about them based on the way they speak. um, And it's not true. Yeah. So it's so challenging the implicit biases we have around the way people speak. Yeah, measuring intelligence. Yeah, it's right. The same like way me- as measuring right. intelligence off of a standardized test. Yeah, intelligence yeah. comes in many different but forms. Exactly, intelligence comes in many different forms, and that it doesn't necessarily come from the way that we speak, and not to make assumptions about people based on what you hear. Mm, I like it. Okay, so 
My so what would be... Uh, okay, so so what? Uh, we know that uh, the doctor is in the house and she's super smart. <laughs> um, no, seriously. So what I think um, just in coming to the table, um, I understand that there that this is people not having the appreciation for the way non-European American people use um the language is going to be a never, I don't think, I don't, I don't know that it'll ever end. Mm -hmm. I know that it'll be an ongoing issue, concern. It'll be the fight that my, not a fight, but it'll be something that my own son will have to address. You know, my own children will have to address. And I understand that. So, so what I'm that to know. But now what is that? I um, think that as a, as an owner of two little citizens and a, a, a mama to many, that now I, I think my biggest task moving forward is really sitting with this conversation that we just had. And I think I'm going to listen to it again, probably before we even air, before we air it and, and figure out what does that mean for me to not be a part of the problem? Because I can sit as I'm sitting here listening, I understand that I too am a part of the problem in some ways. Like I'm a problem. I'm a problem for myself, especially when we talk about the 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 language piece. And I I'm going to do more valuing of African American English because it, this was just introduced to me, to be quite honest. And I, I think it's I think it's a beautiful thing. It actually feels really good. Mm -hmm. And I hope that other people can feel a little bit more profound with understanding that African-American English is a real thing. She ready is not, <laughs> you know what I mean? She, you know, that's, that's a real, like that's language too. And it's to be valued. That's my goal moving forward. Mm. Doctor. <laughs> so I would say the, so what is um, something that I say often that the policing of language has always been connected to the policing of bodies. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, the conversation is not just, not just about language. It's about <clears throat> the way that this issue with language extends itself in, in real time to other intersection, intersecting social issues. <clears throat> so that when, when, when George Zimmerman read, uh, Trayvon Martin's body, there was a language there. It was something that he was perceiving that led to his death, that Sandra Bland's body was read and it led to their death, right? Like, so it's, it's not just about what happens with, with words. It's also what happens with the language of our, of our, of our body and our race and how we show up in the world and how people perceive and understand that. So most of what happens is that when you hear, a certain linguistic practice, you might think of it as inferior. And when you witness a certain body showing up in a certain way, you also think of it as in, of that person as inferior or disposable or worthy of death. And that, that's real in our society. So I would say the so what is understanding that the urgency of valuing and centering linguistic diversity is central to the conversation of equity in general of really valuing lives. And then I would say the now what is to, is to unlearn, do a lot of unlearning about who and what we think is valuable in our world. The only reason that the language practices that come from communities of color are deemed as inferior is because of the people that they're attached to. And so we gotta do some unlearning and we have to, in our society, all of us 
Um, think about what it means to put on a new lens so that we can value different types of people in ways that's equitable and not this hierarchy that continues to, to center whiteness as the only valid form of um, existing in our society. Damn, girl. Jeez. How you gonna, how you gonna connect the dots like that? How you gonna put all them pieces together? <laughs> I, I love it. Y'all are so cool. I, I, I didn't even, I'm just gonna say, I didn't expect, I, I, I didn't expect you to connect the language to the, the way you did. Again, I understand that you have worked really hard and you've done, you know, I mean, you're a woman of practice of, of what you do, but that connection, mm-hmm. I don't know if it hit you, it hit me. Though. Yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I saw your face too, like, yeah. <laughs> um, So this is what we need. We need you to give our listeners where they can find you, how they can get this book, and all of that, anything else they need to know. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, um, Jamila underscore Liscott, it's my name on 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 Twitter and um, Instagram, and also Facebook is just my name. And then um, you can get the book at Amazon, you can get the book at Routledge, it's, and I'm just excited about continuing to have like really powerful conversations about these about these topics in our world. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for coming on today. We I know. So appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Like y'all are super dope. Like the fact that you're having. You're, you're, you're working through the stuff that most people avoid. And that says something, right, for creating such a space. And that's very vulnerable in our society. People are just ready to prey on everything, right? Yes. We have, to, we have to connect her and the curly professor. Yeah. Uh, that would be a, you're like a power, power call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we have this um, other lady that has come on. Listening to the two of you, it is such a blessing to have um, someone like you and her who go into these academic spaces and are able to take what you've put, the, what you've put into your brains, what you've invested, the time that you've invested in knowing and be able to speak it to the everyday person. Because uh, there are not a lot of people that can do that. I'm sure you know that sitting in many classes that just can't take these concepts and then tell a kid on the block and then right. tell the CEO of a company and, and still be able to give them, um, teach the test in that sense. Do you know? Oh, and just, just know that that's very intentional. Acad- academia was set, it's been set up as a space to exclude. And so like breaking those barriers, is it's, it's so set up that way that all the energy that you spend speaking to public people will not get you any kind of tenure. <laughs> so it's like they essentially punish you for it, right? So like they really want to keep a certain kind of knowledge in the academy. So... I mean, shout out to, I'm, I'll be happy to meet the Curly Professor. That sounds Yes, good. you should. Thank you. So until next time, we will uh, stay open, stay curious. And make it a great day closer to history. Ooh, that was a good episode. Yes, it was. Oh, but we would love to give you more. Yes, we would. Like exclusive content, merch, all types of good learning tools. Absolutely. So you can head over to patreon.com slash your neighborhood and check out all our different tiers of giving, or you can just do a one-time donation on Patreon, Cash App, or Venmo at your neighborhood. 